Well, good morning, friends. You may be seated. Uh, before I read the Word of God, I uh, do want to say uh, a word of thanks to Northwest Georgia Presbytery for inviting me to join the commission to install Pastor Duncan. Uh, I'm honored to have been invited not only to be a part of the commission, but to open the scriptures and to preach. I'm thankful and appreciate uh, uh, Pastor Duncan for probably making that request of Presbytery. If he didn't, probably Butch Watson or somebody did. In any case, I'm here, and I'm official, because I've been invited by Northwest Presbytery to participate in this. And so I bring you greetings uh, from your brothers and sisters in Nashville and Nashville Presbytery. Uh, I, at one occasion, was the moderator of that presbytery, so that authorizes me to officially bring greetings from your uh, brothers and sisters, 17, 18 churches, and four or five mission churches in Middle Tennessee and Southern Kentucky. And, uh, and also bring you greetings for, from the Presbyterian Church in America. And uh, as a former moderator, I have that uh, obligation and that privilege. And I want you to know that while I recognize that the Presbyterian Church in America is only one branch of the body of Christ uh, around the world and through the ages, nevertheless, I'm a bit biased. And I happen to be very enthusiastic about the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. And while we have our imperfections, uh, and you are probably well aware of the fact that we are not perfect, we uh, fail in lots of ways, I am quick to say that if you're looking for a denomination that is absolutely committed to the Word of God as being inerrant and true, if you're looking for a denomination that is committed to the historic Reformed faith as we've embraced it through the Westminster Standards, and if you're looking for a denomination that is very serious about uh, engaging the Great Commission and taking the gospel around the world, uh, you could not find a better place uh, to settle in and to serve and lock arms with fellow Christians uh, in regular worship. So if you're a visitor here this morning, we're delighted to have you here, and uh, thank you for being here. I... Uh, I have gotten to know and I've fallen in love with this congregation. I've had the privilege of standing in this pulpit on several occasions, and I've had the privilege of walking very closely with the search committee uh, over the last several months, and I want to say to the congregation, uh, I commend you for having elected such an outstanding representative team uh, to serve you by searching for God's choice to be your next pastor. They've done an outstanding job. They've been faithful. Uh, they've worked hard. Um, we've had moments of, uh, of discouragement. Uh, and yet, uh, we're here today to bear testimony to the fact that God is faithful. And, uh, and so, as a matter of fact, that's really the focus of our worship today is to celebrate uh, the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God. And so I, I thought it would be appropriate for us to go back to the basics as we uh, focus in the scriptures and look at what God has to say about his church and about the way he feels about the church and his commitment to the church because we are celebrating God's love, God's faithfulness, and God's concern for the local church. And so in that regard, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 16, 
Very familiar passage of Scripture, uh, uh, often referred to, quoted, etc., but uh, there's never uh, a more appropriate time for us to read this passage of Scripture and reflect upon it together um, because it is one of the passages that speaks about the church. Uh, beginning with verse 13 of the 16th chapter of, uh, of Matthew, uh, let us give attention to the Word of God. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the word of God. We rejoice that it's ours to hold, to read, to reflect upon, and to feed upon as followers of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for this portion of Scripture, for all of Scripture, but for this particular portion, which is so appropriate for today. And uh, Father, we are thankful that you have given us this account of Jesus' conversation with his disciples, uh, that you've preserved it and kept it. We are thankful that the Holy Spirit, who has um, preserved this word and given it to us, who indeed is the author, is here with us today, enabling us to rightly understand it and to apply it to our hearts and to our fellowship. Oh, Lord God, would you this morning uh, strengthen us, encourage us, feed us, challenge us, and give us direction, and, uh, and deepen our faith as we reflect together on this, your most holy word. For it's through Christ, our blessed Lord, that we ask it. Amen. Now, this passage of Scripture is pretty straightforward takes place in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is there with his disciples. And in a quiet moment, in dialogue with them, he raises the question, what's, what's the scuttlebutt? What are people saying about me? Uh, uh, what's the general things you're hearing about um, people's feeling about me? Who do people say that I am? And various ones of the disciples gave various answers. But it's Simon Peter who said, and Jesus asked the question, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answers, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, uh, the Son of the living God. You're the promised one. You're the one that God promised even through the prophets. And the one that we've been looking forward to, the one who would redeem Israel, you're the promised Messiah. That's who you are. And Jesus, in response to that, says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, 
Because flesh and blood didn't show this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, that's a very, very important passage, packed with truth that we need to remind ourselves of on this very special day in the life of Grace Covenant Church. Now, this passage of Scripture tells us that the church doesn't belong to anybody but God. It belongs to God. This church doesn't belong to a preacher. It doesn't belong to a presbytery. It doesn't belong to the congregation. It doesn't belong to the session. It belongs to God. I will build my church. And then this passage of Scripture tells us that Jesus is the one who provides for his church. He is the agent of its life and health and growth. I will build my church, he said. And then he also tells us that this church that he's building is invincible. Not even the gates of hell can prevail against my church. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful statement of encouragement. And so this morning, as we gather on this special occasion, as we kind of move into the next chapter of the history of Grace Covenant Church, under the leadership of God's ordained and called pastor, we need to remind ourselves of the fact that God loves the church more than we can possibly imagine. Uh, we need to remind ourselves of the fact that God is faithful uh, beyond our comprehension and that we're not alone. <laughs> Everything we need, he will provide. And we also need to remind ourselves of the fact that this church, not this church alone, but the entire body of Christ, is the, only, is the only institution in all of society which is supernatural in nature and will endure forever. Governments come and go. Civic clubs come and go. Foundations come and go. Nations come and go. But the church of the living God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, will live forever. So we have, by His grace, been called to be a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we are referred to as uh, sons and daughters. Sometimes we're referred to as soldiers. Sometimes we're referred to as sheep. Uh, sometimes we're referred to as stones fitly joined together. But whatever the metaphor, we are a part of the most unique, the most powerful, the only institution in all of society that will never evaporate, never go away. Allow your mind to be wrapped around that truth, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, the family of God, brothers and sisters by adoption of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father. 
So I recognize the fact that we're doing a lot today, and I'm not going to preach a long sermon, but I do want to kind of point out two or three very, very important things that are in this passage about the church that belongs to Jesus and that he is building. Uh, so grab it. The first thing I want you to see is that this, this church that belongs to Jesus is built on a very solid foundation. On this rock, I will build my church. Ask any builder, and he will tell you the foundation is the most important thing about the building he's building. Even before I was born in my hometown in eastern North Carolina, a town called Greenville, uh, North Carolina, this city school board decided that they, the city needed a brand new high school. And so they selected a site, they contracted with an architect, and then a contractor, and a beautiful, modern, up-to-date building was built in about 1930. I wasn't born then. <laughs> but I've, I've heard the story again and again and again, Okay. And the building was finally completed, and inspectors from the city were going through the building with a fine-tooth comb to inspect it before it was certified for occupancy. And they discovered a fine hairline crack between the bricks in two or three places on the building. And they began to do in-depth examination, and they discovered that the building was built on shifting sand. It horrified the school board because they had spent a lot of the taxpayers' money building this brand new fancy building, but there was no choice. Bulldozers were brought in, the building was demolished, and today it's a park in our hometown. Foundations are very, very important. Good many years ago at Christ Press, we uh, decided to build a new sanctuary, and the architect drew the plans, and we placed it on the church's uh, plat, and we were all excited about it, and then the, the contractor came out and began to take source, uh, core samples, and he, he came to the, uh, to the building committee, and he says, we can't put the sanctuary there. Oh, why? Perfect site for it. He says, well, uh, somebody has used that site as a, as a dumping ground in years past, and that site is now marked with muck. We can never lay an adequate foundation for this building on that site. We had to move it 20 feet forward, which turned out okay. We all know that to be true, don't we? You go to a big city like downtown Atlanta, and you look up at the skyscrapers 30 and 40 feet or higher into the air, and you know that if you'd been there when construction began, they would be digging a deep, deep hole and pouring thousands of tons of rock and concrete into that hole, building a solid foundation. The higher you go, the stronger the foundation. Well, listen, Jesus is building his church on a solid foundation, the rock. And it's not the person of Peter. No, no, it's the testimony of Peter. If you're studying the Greek language, you'll see the tenses would make it very, very clear. You are Peter, the man, but I'm going to build on the rock, your testimony, that the tenses tell the story. Not on you, but what you said. You said that I am the Christ, the promised Messiah, the one that Israel's been looking forward to, the one who would redeem Israel. The one through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. 
You said that. And that testimony is going to be the basis, the foundation for the church. And you only have to go to the second chapter of Acts to see it begin to play out. Because when the Holy Spirit came, the disciples were waiting for the Holy Spirit. Jesus had said to them, wait here until the Holy Spirit came. And when the Holy Spirit came, they were filled and they went out with enthusiasm, with boldness, and with courage out into the streets. And Peter stood on the temple steps and he began to preach, not about himself. He didn't preach biblical moralisms. He preached Jesus, the promised Messiah, the one who came and lived among us. The one who was crucified, who was dead, who was buried, who, raised, who was raised from the dead. And Peter said, this Christ, whom you crucified, has God made both Lord and King. And you know what happened? 3,000 people were saved that day. The foundation was beginning to be laid. And then you only have to go over to the second, third and fourth chapter, and Peter and John are on the way to the temple to pray. You remember that story? And they encountered this crippled man who was begging for money. And, and Peter and John said, we don't have any money, but what we have we'll give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And with that, a big crowd began to gather because the man began to stand up and leap and shout and, and, and uh, demonstrate that he was made whole again. And see in the big crowd, Peter and John began to preach and read about it in Acts chapter 3. What did they talk about? Jesus, the promised Messiah, who lived among us, who died as an atonement for our sin, was crucified, buried, raised again from the dead. And we read that 5,000 people were saved, right? Oh, they got thrown in jail for it. But the foundation was being laid, not on human personality, not on Peter, but on the message of the gospel. Listen, let me just tell you, Jesus will not build his church on charismatic personalities. He'll not build his church on biblical moralisms. He'll not build his church on fancy church programs or fancy uh, consumer ideas, or sound biblical uh, business principles, Jesus builds his church on the preaching of the gospel. And that's the only foundation upon which he'll build his church. Well, having gotten to know something about Grace Covenant Church, let me just tell you, the gospel has been faithfully preached here from the very beginning. The foundation that has been laid, dear brother, is a firm foundation. It's now incumbent upon you to make sure that the gospel continues to be preached in this place so that Jesus will be pleased to continue to build his church. He'll build his church on nothing else. The second thing you see in this passage is that the church is not static, but it's dynamic. I will build my church. That's present active. I will build my church. I will continue to build my church. As long as the gospel is preached, I will build my church. Not something that has happened, but something that has happened and continue to happen. It's a growing, dynamic uh, institution that God has established by supernatural power. There's nothing sadder than seeing a, an unfinished building. Many, many years ago, I was visiting an old college roommate who had 
transferred and eventually was a student at West Point. And uh, he had invited me to come up and be a part of his wedding, and he was to be graduating in the morning and get married that afternoon. And so while we were there, he took me, uh, this was before he was married, he took uh, me and my wife Alice on a, on a little tour of the Hudson Valley. And he said, I got something I want to show you. And he took me off a side road and up a hill and around, and we came up to a bluff overlooking the Hudson River uh, across from West Point. And there on that bluff was an unfinished castle. I'd never seen anything like it before. Obviously, it was a huge, beautiful, magnificent building, but it was half finished. And in the magnificent courtyard, there were now trees uh, that began as little bushes, but now were pretty big trees, and, and vines were everywhere, and you could hardly tell that there was something there. And he told me the story. He said, back in the 20s, uh, there was a very wealthy businessman in New York City who fell in love with a, a German lady who was an actress who came to New York City to act and dance. And they fell madly in love. And she promised to marry him, and as a, as a special gift to her, he was going to build this castle. And they were going to live in the castle, and, and so they were engaged, but she had to go back to Germany to do some things, and she was going to be gone for several months. And the ha castle was about halfway through, and he got a telegram from her, breaking off the engagement, saying she was never coming back to America. And the work stopped. When the love died, the work stopped. Nothing else was never done to the castle. Not another stone was laid. Uh, not another hour's work was done. From the moment he got the telegram, the work stopped. Now, that reminds me of the Reformation. Because in the late 1400s and early 1500s, God began to open the eyes of certain of his servants, like John Calvin and Martin Luther and Zwingli and others, and began to show them that he had stopped his work. That uh, while beautiful, ornate buildings had been built, the work of the kingdom, the work of building the church had come to a standstill because the gospel was no longer preached. And so these reformers set themselves about the task of bringing about reformation. And John Calvin stood out above the rest because John Calvin said, we don't need to just make adjustments. He said this, we need to clear away the rubble and get back to the foundation that's been laid by the apostles and the prophets. Get back to the gospel. We need to clear away the rubble. And we need to see that the church is reformed by the word of God, by the preaching of the word of God, and continues to be reformed as the word of God is preached. Hence, we get the word reformed as, as, uh, as Calvinists. We've embraced reformed theology. And what had happened, you see, all over Europe, was the fact that people were coming, but the gospel was being distorted. The truth was not being preached. And people were being led to believe that they could work, work their way to heaven and that they had to somehow uh, put their merit on the line and pray to Mother Mary, etc., etc. And, and God graciously came and said, No, I have stopped building my church. Clear away the rubble so that I can start rebuilding the church and get it growing again. Several years ago, a friend of mine who's a Calvin scholar 
uh, went to Geneva and spent several months, and he came back and gave me a report. He said, your, Charles, your heart would be broken if you were in Geneva today. And the very church where John Calvin preaches, used to preach, St. Peter's in Geneva. It's, the pulpit is occupied today by a communist who doesn't even believe the gospel. He's nothing but a humanist. The gospel is no longer preached there. Old historic, ornate building, but Jesus isn't there. The foundation is no longer being laid. Nothing is happening there. Same thing is true at St. Giles in, uh, in, uh, in Edinburgh, where John Knox preached for years. The same thing is true. So the fact of the matter is, <clears throat> when the gospel is preached, not only is the foundation laid, but the church continues to grow dynamic. You see, people, when the gospel is preached, people are saved. Uh, when the gospel is preached, people's lives are changed. When, when the gospel is preached, people's motivations are changed. And, uh, and, and we began to see the body of Christ function with life and vitality. And great glory and honor comes to the living God. Because Jesus is exalted. His gospel is preached. And his gospel, Jesus will not build his church on anything else other than the preaching of the gospel. We have nothing else to offer. Nothing but the gospel. Yeah, I saw that just a few ago. A church in Nashville asked me to come and give them some advice and counsel about their church and their church's life. And I've learned something about the history of this church. It, uh, I won't mention the denomination, but it once was a, a pretty vibrant church right on Music Row in, uh, in Nashville. You know about Music Row where Hank Williams and all these guys and Johnny Cash recorded, etc. Well, this church is right on Music Row. Back in the early 70s, the church had declined to about 35 folks, all of whom were over 65. And they were so desperate, they called a preacher who was, who was alive and willing to come. And, and, and for the first time, for the first time probably in 50 years, that little group of people began to hear the gospel. And almost overnight, within a matter of months, that little church began to explode. And within a matter of a year, they were having four and 5,000 people worshiping now in a warehouse. And uh, people were getting on fire. Amy Grant and her family were a part of that church. And Michael W. Smith and others were a part of that church. All because finally, after years and years and years, the gospel began to be preached. And that church exists today. And, uh, and the gospel continues to be preached in that community. Called Belmont Church. And uh, I, I won't tell you the rest of the history because I don't want to disparage the group it used to be a part of, but it's now a freestanding church that simply preaches the gospel consistently. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, when the gospel is preached, is a growing, dynamic thing. Not dead and static, but alive and community-changing in its impact. One final thing I want you to see in this passage is the fact that the church of Jesus Christ, the one that Jesus is building, is a very aggressive and dynamic uh, institution. As a, as a matter of fact, it's invincible. 
The gates of hell, he said. On this church I will build, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. You see, up until now, Jesus has been using an architectural metaphor. Pouring the foundation, building the stones, living stones, etc., and the structures getting bigger and bigger and more and more magnificent and more and more beautiful. But now all of a sudden he changes the metaphor. It's no longer an architectural metaphor, it's now a military metaphor. It's, it's the picture of, of the church as an army, a well-equipped army, a well-trained army, a strongly motivated army, uh, an army that clearly understands that such a, its objective is this walled fortress with massive gates, and the fortress is called hell. And you can see it in your mind, can't you, this, this, this army. Under the, under the command of, of the captain of the Lord of hosts, uh, King Jesus, and this army made up of, of all, the, uh, all the necessary items of warfare, poised against the very gates of hell. And Jesus said, not even the gates of hell can stand against the church. You see, some people think of the church as being an armed fortress. We're going to protect ourselves from all of the ungodly influences in the world in which we live. You know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to be a, a, a group of pure, holy people, and we're not going to allow ourselves to be influenced. No, that, that's not the picture. Hell is their armed fortress, and that's where the devil enslaves people and holds people in bondage and holds people in darkness where people are in chains, where they cannot understand or comprehend or be set free to be whom God created them to be. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is God's anointed liberators. And we not only stand there and bemoan the devil's work, we aggressively attack the very fortifications of Satan himself in order to set people free. And so it's a picture of, of a mighty army, well-equipped, well-trained, well-led. And a church that is faithful, a church that is faithful understands that. It's a challenge for us, dear friends, to understand Dallas and Paulding County very, very well. Where is the devil at work in Dallas and Paulding County? Who in Dallas and Paulding County has he enslaved? Who is he deceiving in Dallas and Paulding County? What is he doing to individuals? What is he doing to families? What is he doing to institutions? Where is the devil at work? We need to know that. We also need to train ourselves to engage the devil. We need leadership. We need prayer. We need training. Because let me just tell you, we're just not a, a building. We're an army. I, I love that great old hymn that I should have asked to be sung today. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war. With the cross of Jesus going on before Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe. Forward into battle, 
see his banners go. And then the third verse of that great hymn goes like this, like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided, all one body we, one in hope and uh, doctrine, one in charity. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Several years ago, I heard my good friend Archie Parrish. You may know Archie. <clears throat> he lives here in the Atlanta area somewhere. Helped Jim Kennedy really develop the evangelism explosion program and led it for many, many years. I heard Archie speak, and Archie said, you know, we Christians, we Christians need to be reminded regularly that we're an army. And if an army is to ever be victorious, it needs to get on a war footing. And then all of a sudden, as he said that, I remembered when I was just a boy, early in the morning on December 7th, 1941, about 8 o'clock in the morning, hundreds and hundreds of Japanese fighter planes swept over Pearl Harbor, destroyed 18 of our ships, most of them sunk right in the harbor. Uh, about 300 airplanes, 2,500 men were killed. Over 1,000 were seriously wounded. And the next day, President Franklin Roosevelt stood before Congress, and he called December 7th as a day that would go down in history and infamy. Some of us remember that. I remember, you remember, don't you, Loring? Yeah. And as a result... The Congress passed a resolution declaring war on Japan and on Germany. From that moment, the nation went on a war footing. The whole manufacturing industrial complex in America was shifted to build from building automobiles and refrigerators and radios and, and those kinds of things to building tanks and airplanes, and trucks, and jeeps, and guns, and ammunitions, etc. And for four or five years, we, those of us who weren't wearing uniforms, bought our stuff on ration books. And we couldn't buy certain things because they had to go for the war cause. The nation went on a war footing, and because we went on a war footing, we were ultimately victorious both in Pacific and in Europe. I want to say to you, dear friends, this church that the Lord Jesus Christ is building is not just a great structure with a solid foundation. It's meant to be a mighty army. And we need to start seeing ourselves as soldiers. And I want you to think of your pastor, Pastor Duncan, as being your new company commander, responsible for constantly reminding us of the fact that there's an enemy out there. And it's our responsibility to engage him with the power of the gospel so that people will be set free, so that families will be restored, and so that the Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified and magnified, and his kingdom will continue to grow and expand in our city, in our community, and even beyond. Welcome on board, Captain Duncan. We welcome you, and we desire that you shave us up into a mighty fighting force for the glory and for the honor of Christ, our captain. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father.
for this wonderful passage of Scripture, basic as it is, but profound in every respect and so applicable to where we are today. Lord God, you've blessed this congregation in years gone by. We look for you to take us into the next chapter and produce great fruit for your glory and give us many victories for the honor and glory of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.